0: The SEC has charged Exelon and former ComEd CEO Anne Promajore with fraud. And I'll talk with Cranes reporter Ali Maradi about Journeyman Distillery, which is expanding beyond its home in Three Oaks, Michigan, to open a $40 million facility in Indiana.
1: And what's so fascinating to me about this growing industry is that a lot of laws, you know, leftover from prohibition, what
0: have you, have had to change in order for these distilleries to open. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, October 2nd. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com slash banker. Wintrust products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. FDIC EHL. Journeyman Distillery is expanding beyond its home in Three Oaks, Michigan, to open a forty million dollar facility in Indiana. Here to talk about it, Cranes reporter Ali Moradi. Welcome back, Ali. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me, Amy. It's good to be back. Of course. So, tell me about this this new facility in Indiana. Forty million dollars seems like a, quite quite a structure.
1: Yes, it is. And, you know, that went up significantly over the past few years, but I'll get into that momentarily. Basically, these new digs will include a distillery, a craft brewery, multiple restaurants and event spaces. It's going to start a phased opening in October. It's based in Three Oaks, Michigan, which is about 70 miles from Chicago, Chicago. The founder tells me that their main clientele are Chicagoans. So this move will get Journeyman closer to Chicago, which is one of its core markets, but also help grow its standing among Midwestern distillers and just distillers in general. And where in Indiana will this new facility be located? This facility will be in Valparaiso, and it is going to inhabit an old factory, which is something that Journeyman loves to do. So the founder is named Bill Welter. Uh, he started with his wife, Johanna, back in 2010 and their original location in Three Oaks occupies an old corset and buggy whip factory. Wow. So they love to kind of re- restore these old buildings and um, some of their uh, their spirits, you know, their whiskeys, etc., are buggy whip wheat and, you know, that sort of thing. So they kind of pay homage to it. So this building that it's going into, um, it's going to be 140,000 square feet, which is more than triple the size of the Three Oaks location. And it's occupying this factory that was built in the mid 1800s. And originally it was occupied by the Woolen mill company, but it, he told me it has been occupied by a bunch of other manufacturing businesses over the years too. And they're just trying to breathe new life into it.
0: And what's the status of that smaller distillery Model right now. You know, we we talked a lot about craft beer and how it was shifting. What has that been like for the craft distillery?
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting actually. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to dig into the story a bit. But when Journeyman opened back in 2010, it was one of about 300 micro distilleries in the country. That number grew to 2,700 by 2020, which is the most recent count from the American Craft Spirits Association. And what's so fascinating to me about this growing industry is that a lot of laws, you know, leftover from prohibition, what have you, have had to change in order for these distilleries to open. And whether it's local laws, you know, state level laws, all that kind of stuff. So a lot of these distilleries and and their owners have really been on the cutting edge of getting those laws changed, establishing new practices around distilling and sort of creating this um, micro distillery industry here.
0: Have the laws mostly been around selling the booze or or distilling it or all of the above?
1: It's just all of the above, I think, you know, selling, making it, etc. You know, in the craft beer industry, we've talked about this a lot, too. In Illinois, for example, you still can't ship craft beer directly to consumers if you're a brewery because of our three-party distribution system. That's kind of an example of how there's different laws between the different parts of the alcohol industry and everybody's operating under these strange rules. It really hasn't been for the faint of heart to run a micro distillery over the past decade, but the industry is maturing. Consumers are really interested in learning about where and how their spirits are made so, um, you know, I talked to someone from the American Craft Spirits Association, and she told me that basically if, if you're a company and you are kind of keying in on making your distillery a destination spot that's good for tourism, you're going to end up doing well because that's what the consumer is really craving right now. And uh, Journeyman does that. You know, at their Three Oaks location, they've got all of their distilling equipment on display there. You can see it from the restaurant. You, you greet it immediately when you walk in. I was actually just there recently and you kind of walk in the door and there it is staring you in the face. Bill Welter told me that they're planning to do that at the Valparaiso location as well um, and just give people an idea of where and how things are made.
0: So talk to me about the uh, the financing for this project, because as you reported, uh, this started about five years ago and they had earmarked about $27 million for the job. Lots of things have happened since then, including inflation driving up the costs. Um, but how they assembled that funding seems like an interesting tale. Unpack that, if you would.
1: Yeah, it is. So um, it came from a mix of sources. They're looking at about $10 million that they kind of just earned you know, at the distillery and uh, saved up, right? And they've got a $15 million loan. Thirteen million came from a variety of grants and tax credits, which you know you can typically get from a municipality if you're restoring a historic building or something along those lines, creating jobs, that sort of thing. Um, then the final two million, and this is really interesting, it came from an investment program that they created, and basically it allowed 110 people to kind of give them a $15,000 loan in exchange for a 53-gallon barrel of whiskey, as well as other perks <laughs> like parties, etc. So the way he described it to me was sort of like, you give us this loan, and then it's like, instead of paying you back interest, we're going to give you this giant barrel of whiskey, which obviously is very appealing to whiskey fans, right? So that's how they're doing it. And you're right, it did take a lot longer than they envisioned. They kind of started the process five years ago, and the pandemic slowed everything down for everybody particularly things that had a lot of red tape to cut through. So I think that they're pretty excited to get this up and running.
0: Also, I, I love that kind of system of like, okay, how, how can we be creative and and raise some funding to do this? What do we have? We have booze. Um, and so this idea of having a 53-gallon barrel of whiskey in exchange for this, this uh, financing is kind of an – it's a creative idea. Are they allowed to keep the 53-gallon barrel of whiskey on the property, or do they have to – haul it off? Where would you put that? That's a
1: great question. I, I did not ask that, actually. I believe that they keep it there on the property, but I could be wrong about that. And then I think what happens is that they have parties and stuff that these you know investors can come to and bring their loved ones and kind of tap into their, their barrel of whiskey. Um, but I don't know. I mean, if they asked Nicely enough, they may be able to take it (laughs) off property and just store it in their basement or whatever. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's almost like a kind of crowdfunding. And, you know, Bill was telling me that he took inspiration from another company that had done something similar. I believe it was in a different industry. But you do kind of see people getting creative nowadays with this, especially as people have, you know, over the past couple of years, just some people have really saved up their disposable income since the pandemic and they're looking on something kind of fun and interesting like this to spend it on or invested in, right? Because then you feel when you have your customers that are investing in the business, they behave differently. And this is sort of like, a, I learned this in another story I recently did. If you can invest in something that you're also patronizing, you're going to patronize it differently. And that's good for you know the community and also for the business itself.
0: Yeah, definitely. Plus, for the 110 people who, who bought in at that level for that, for that uh, barrel of whiskey, I'm sure they're about to get very popular with their friends. Hey, I have 53 gallons of whiskey. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Definitely. Which is probably a lot, right? I, yeah, I, I need to Google how exactly how big a 53 gallon barrel is for sure. So, so tell me about this particular facility that he found, though, because there's a, there's a bit of a, a maybe family tie to Valparaiso.
1: Yeah, so uh, Bill Welter is um, from Valpo. He grew up there, was born and raised. His grandfather, who actually had the same name as him, owned a bank there and starting in the 1970s. And then his father worked at the bank and he actually worked at the bank as well until the family business was sold in 2006. And so for him, it's it's kind of a homecoming. Um, he's really excited to get back there and start what he Hopes will be another family business there. You know, his sisters were born and raised there too. And so the factory is not in that facility or anything, but it's just kind of being back in a town that he feels so near and dear to is, is really special. And he said it felt like destiny and that the stars aligned for him when he finally found this factory.
0: Yeah. And so to be clear, the Michigan facility is still staying open. Yes. Okay. So this is just an expansion. And do you have a sense of the timeline? You said it's going to kind of start in October. What are the phases beyond that?
1: Yeah. So they're having a grand opening party. I think it's October 14th. And then I'm not exactly sure what the phases are. I think the restaurants, there's uh, space for multiple restaurants, but I don't think they have those all sorted out yet. And then there's sort of an event space. That's another big part of their business. It's something we should talk about too, because in Three Oaks, they've got an event space there. But something that will be new at this new facility is the craft brewing aspect of it. And he was just telling me that, you know, it's really important for distilleries to diversify their revenue streams, which is something we've seen a lot of in the restaurant industry at large since the pandemic. You know, if you put all your eggs in one basket, it's never a good thing in business, right? So um, he was saying, though the industry has grown a lot, there are headwinds. Basically, people peeling back their discretionary spending because of inflation. People kind of trying not to drink as much as maybe they once did. All that kind of stuff. So he just wants to try to diversify his revenue streams as much as possible. So he will have an event space there, um, indoor and outdoor, actually. Uh, this this distill or this um, brewery, and then the restaurants, which I think he's thinking about multiple concepts. So they're just going to phase the openings of, of all those over time. And I'm not exactly sure how long it will take, but it will be starting
0: in mid-October. Everybody keep turning to chicagobusiness.com for the latest. And uh, perhaps we'll hear all about these, these phased openings and, the, and all of its phases. All right. Always a pleasure, Allie. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Coming up, the signature room near the top of the former Hancock Tower has closed its doors. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Cranes Daily Gist. Subscribe to The Cranes Morning Ten. It's our daily newsletter featuring the ten biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit ChicagoBusiness.com/slash Morning Ten. This is The Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's John Pletz reported that the SEC charged Exelon, ComEd, and former ComEd CEO Anne Promajore with fraud in connection with a scheme to influence former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan. Exelon, ComEd's parent company, is paying a $46.2 million fine, and Promagiori is fighting the charges, the SEC says. Promagiori was among those convicted in May of conspiracy bribery and falsification of records after a seven-week trial in federal court. Pletz also noted in reporting that Exelon said last month that it was setting aside $46 million for the SEC case. ComEd already agreed to pay a $200 million fine in connection with the criminal case in a deferred prosecution agreement in which the company admitted to committing bribery. Pramajori was convicted along with ComEd lobbyists Michael McLean, John Hooker, and Jay Doherty of conspiring to bribe Madigan in exchange for support of legislation favorable to ComEd. Pletz noted in reporting that each faces up to 20 years in prison when they're due to be sentenced in January. Bloomberg reported that fast food companies are pushing back against European Union proposals to require all restaurants to use reusable materials for serving dine-in customers, warning that early experiences with reuse aren't promising. Chicago-based McDonald's said that after spending years reducing the use of environmentally harmful plastics in its restaurants by focusing on recycling and recyclable packaging— The EU plan would amount, they say, to a reversal. Bloomberg noted in reporting that McDonald's has experimented with offering reusable cups in several European countries, and says that many of them simply disappear. That's the case in Germany, where customers who select reusable materials pay a deposit, but only 40% of the cups ever return to restaurants. And the initial results in the Netherlands are even more discouraging, with only 25% coming back, also despite a deposit. Bloomberg noted in reporting that John Banner, the global chief impact officer for McDonald's, said in a recent interview that currently 94% of the company's packaging in Europe is fiber-based, mostly from wood fibers. Plastic is still used in liners for hot and cold cups, but he said McDonald's is developing a plastic-free cup too. Last year, the EU's executive arm proposed sweeping rules that would require widespread use of reusable materials even for takeaway food. This spring, although the targets for takeaway packaging were stripped out of the parliament's latest version, the proposal would still include requirements for food eaten inside quick-service restaurants. Bloomberg reported that the European Parliament's Environment Committee is scheduled to vote on the proposal on October 24th. While McDonald's, citing its own research, said that cups need to be reused 50 to 100 times to make them preferable environmentally to single-use products, environmental groups are pushing hard for the EU to press ahead with its plan for reusable items. As the UAW ratchets up its pressure against automakers to reach a new contract, UAW members at Ford's Torrance Avenue plant announced Friday morning they would go on strike at noon.
1: A union that's not prepared to strike to win is like a fighter with one hand tied behind his back. Without the strike weapon, the war on workers is a rigged fight.
0: United Auto Workers President Sean Fain is ratcheting up the pressure on carmakers as the work stoppage extended into a third week.
1: What we win at the bargaining table depends on the power we build on the job. It's time to use that power. I'm calling on Ford's Chicago assembly plant to stand up and go on strike. And I'm calling on GM's Lansing Delta Township to stand up and go out on strike. And let me be clear, and this is important, Lansing Regional Stamping will continue working.
0: Negotiators continued to talk through issues including wages, pensions, and battery workers. John Pletz reported that Fain told members Friday morning, quote, We're working day and night to bargain a contract. Despite our willingness to bargain, Ford and GM refused to make meaningful progress. He continued, We're still talking with all three companies. I'm still very hopeful we can reach a deal. Pletz reported that about a week ago, Fein singled out Ford for agreeing to union demands to eliminate tiered wage programs that result in new workers making far less than their peers, reinstating a cost-of-living provision and increasing profit-sharing. In recent days, Ford was identified as a target along with GM, where its assembly plant near Lansing would go on strike. Pletz noted in reporting that the strike began on September 15th with walkouts at factories near Detroit, St. Louis, and in Toledo. A week later, 38 spare parts centers, including a GM facility in Bolingbrook and a Stellantis operation in Naperville, joined the strike. The Stellantis factory in Belvedere, which employs about 1,300 workers, hasn't been affected because it was idled in February. Pletz also noted in reporting that, according to officials briefed on the matter, the union had also planned to strike at Stellantis, but changed course right before Fain's announcement, which was delayed due to the negotiations. The union chief commended Stellantis for making progress in the talks. The total number of workers on strike as of noon Friday came in at 25,000 people, or 17 percent, of the Detroit Big Three's hourly workforce. Find more reporting at chicagobusiness.com. The longtime operator of the Signature Room near the top of the former John Hancock Center has closed the business, citing what was described as economic issues tied to a slow recovery from the pandemic's impacts on North Michigan Avenue. In a message posted Thursday at the restaurant space on the 95th and 96th floors of the tower at 875 North Michigan Avenue, the Signature Room owners wrote that the restaurant was closing permanently as of Thursday. Ecker reported that the closure of the renowned dining spot is a gut punch for the Mag Mile, which has struggled to regain its footing since the onset of the pandemic. Retailers who have closed up and reduced foot traffic along North Michigan Avenue have left the shopping corridor with record-high vacancy and desperate for a boost that would restore it as a destination for tourists and locals alike. The sudden move to close also comes as the owners of the more than 26,000-square-foot space that houses the Signature Room and the Signature Lounge cocktail bar above it look to sell. Ecker reported that a venture led by New York-based Madison Capital and Newark, New Jersey-based PGIM Real Estate hired the Chicago office of brokerage Cushman & Wakefield earlier this year to sell the property. Marketing materials framed the restaurant as a unique offering that consistently draws visitors and provides stable cash flow. The restaurant's parent, Infusion Management Group, recently extended its lease for the property by 10 years and is committed to the space through the end of 2031, according to the Cushman & Wakefield Flyer. The flyer also said that Infusion has a triple net lease for the property, meaning that it covers maintenance and other expenses like taxes and insurance, and recently invested $1.5 million in renovations to the space.